A short pause, but hopefully a fruitful one. Our submarine has discovered the wreck of a merchant ship. That must be a rare stroke of luck, finding such a treasure ship. We do not leave anything to chance, Professor. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. This is episode 105. We're back to Cole's choice. What did you choose for us? Well, I didn't choose this weather, but it sounds kind of appropriate. If you hear this in the background, what sounds like cannon fire going off, it is a very rainy and thunderstormy evening here in Austin. And what I've chosen to talk about is Invention for Destruction from 1958. Directed by Carol Zaman, who began in poster design before moving on to filmmaking... And the film itself stars Lubor Tokos, Arnos Navratil, Miloslav Holub, and Jana Zatlukalova. This is based on a handful of Jules Verne's works, most notably Facing the Flag, and it's about a scientist and his assistant who are kidnapped by pirates and forced to develop a weapon of unimaginable destructive power. I definitely like this title, Invention for Destruction, much more than the incredibly innocuous The Fabulous World of Jules Verne. I'm assuming that that was a marketing ploy to make it easier to sell to English-speaking markets who were infinitely more acquainted with Jules Verne than Carol Zaman. And maybe there was also a slight motivation of assuaging American guilt for their fairly recent use of nuclear weapons. It is the most commercially successful Czech film ever produced, and it did play in those international markets. It didn't really succeed in the U.S. Personally, I cannot see why the thing didn't succeed, but maybe I'm a little biased because I feel like this movie was made especially for me. I think it's clear to see that it, of course, influenced so many other filmmakers. And I think that those later works are possibly more well-known, at least in America, than this film which is too bad. Now, were you or are you a big Jules Verne fan? I was going to ask you the same question. I have the exact same thing written down here for you, specifically asking when you were a kid. I definitely was, though I feel like that was maybe coming from the Disney movies of the 50s and 60s before the books themselves. We watched The Wonderful World of Disney every Sunday night when I was a kid, and that's where I first saw 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea before I was even old enough to read the book. I assume coming a little bit behind me in years, you didn't have the same experience. Au contraire, mon frère. I did. We watched it religiously as well. But I never read the books. I still haven't read the books. I'm kind of embarrassed by that. I'm much more familiar with the films that came from the works. I loved those kid editions of those kinds of stories. Now, did you get around to reading the books at any point? I did, a handful at least. I haven't read the great majority of these. For instance, from this series that this comes from, there are about 25 novels in that range that he wrote. I would say probably four or five of the big ones. 
Fortunately for you and anyone else that hasn't read them, though, they ease into this in a much more Disney style. This opening scene definitely has that Disney feeling from that era, so it feels immediately comforting probably to you, me, and anyone else that grew up with that stuff. It's that come on into my study or library and gather around for a tale of amazing adventure feeling. Maybe that's just me. Do you know the type of opening scene that I mean? A comfortable room filled with objects designed to appeal to the intellectually curious, a globe, beautiful antiquarian books, a spyglass, all wood and leather and brass. And while the narrator speaks, the camera pushes in until it comes to rest on the thing that contains our story for the evening. Do you have those same associations? Definitely. All that's missing is a gentle wind blowing the journal pages. <laughs> I also just enjoy that touch of already exalting the work of Jules Verne in the narration about how he's fired their imaginations. Well, this opening scene shares a lot of those hallmarks of those Disney-type movies, but the difference between something like this and Journey to the Center of the Earth or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is immense and obvious right away. Journey to the Center of the Earth came just one year later than this, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea came four years earlier, but Invention for Destruction feels like it comes from a much earlier era with its minimal dialogue and highly visual storytelling style. It feels like it could have easily been from the turn of the century, and it has a lot in common with much older films, silent films in particular, and the clear antecedent goes all the way back to the infancy of filmmaking, and that's George Méliès. Méliès himself adapted Verne multiple times with The Impossible Voyage, The Conquest of the Pole, and probably most famously A Trip to the Moon. I know everyone is probably familiar with that. Why do you think Verne is such fertile ground for filmmakers with these sorts of sensibilities? I'm glad we're mentioning Georges Méliès as well because he's still on my mind from our Saving Brenton episode, so it's fun to talk about. I think it has to be some element of pushing into the future. These writers coming up with these magnificent machines and ideas that resonated at the time and continue to resonate today or at any point. Really, he did fire imaginations. And you take someone who's so incredibly creative and talented, having that very specific image and vision to bring to life. And I think Zaman was attracted by what he called the world of the romantically fantastic. It's adventure. It's so much spirit. So much to evoke in the mind of the reader and then in the mind of the audience. I think that's right on the money. And I think a lot of that is rooted in optimism is what I love about it. I think a certain type of mind is filled with admiration and wonder at what we're capable of. They see a world where the only limits are those of the human imagination and they truly live in that. Zaman and Méliès both operate with that same sense of whimsy and ambition with what you can do with the form. Zaman just takes those techniques and tricks and makes them mid-century modern. And I don't want to make it sound like this is a dusty relic of some kind. Or an inaccessible artifact. Yeah, it's not that. Its forebears aren't that. There are some films from the silent era that are still as exciting and innovating as anything happening today when you watch them. They were inventing the very idea of special effects as they went. Also, these techniques are still influential, still being practiced. Terry Gilliam is a great example. His style of hybrid animation and live action is an extension of exactly this type of thing. I know you're not the biggest fan of Gilliam, but can you appreciate how he implements this in his work? 
or is the disconnect you feel there just too much to overcome? I know he's generally more cynical compared to either one of these filmmakers. Does that affect how you look at it as well? I hadn't really thought about it until you mentioned it. I don't think it's cynicism. I don't think it's darkness. There is that element of grotesquerie that you know I Mm -hmm. have a difficult time with. It's just something that I never got into. I never fully appreciated. I couldn't somehow get my mind into the spirit of what I believe he's trying to do. Whereas with Zayman, I feel no disconnect whatsoever. And I was really looking forward to watching this based on how much fun the fabulous Baron Munchausen was. Right. And you wouldn't feel that way if I said, hey, let's watch Jabberwocky. Right. (laughs) Or Brazil that I still haven't gotten through. But honestly, I don't want to trash talk an artist because I do like Terry Gilliam. There are things that I like. It's just not my favorite. And actually, I think I should clarify something. I mentioned the fabulous Baron Munchausen. That's Zayman as well. And Gilliam also did a Baron Munchausen. So let's talk a little bit about the visual style of this film. Every inch of it, and that is no exaggeration, is like incredible late 19th century literary illustrations come to life. Those line engravings that you associate with that time. It really is a fascinating animation-live-action hybrid. I often couldn't tell what was hand-drawn and what wasn't. Could you? I couldn't either, so it just made me marvel at the scenic design and the work happening in the camera. It's like a great cinematic pop-up book is the most basic way I can think to explain it. If you like turn-of-the-century illustration and print styles like I do, this is a must. And I'm talking right now to that segment of you folks that like me, could look at the 1905 Sears catalog all day long. You're my people, (laughs) and this movie is just for us. It's a style that you don't see much in general use anymore, but it is still constantly with us. You likely have an example in your pocket. Paper currency in the U.S. and a lot of other places is still designed this way. Though that's about it. Photography has all but done away with the need for this style otherwise, so anyone still doing it that doesn't work for the U.S. meant is using it for artistic, not commercial purposes. Zaman was so enamored of Verne and the style of illustration in his novels that he wouldn't entertain using any other style of visuals for the film. He thought there was no other way to be true to the spirit of the story. And while we're talking about it, we should absolutely credit Léon Benet. He's really the most important illustrator of Jules Verne's books. And between 1873 and 1910, he illustrated 25 of those novels from that Voyage Extraordinaire series. And he did a few other books by Verne as well. But his visual style is incredibly unique. And I want to say as well that the movie is no knockoff version of that. It brings it to life and I think something even greater occurs. Yeah, as much as the film pays homage to Verne, it equally does so to Binet. And he didn't just work with Verne, he also did art for Hugo, for Tolstoy. But Zayman is so thoroughly devoted to this idea of being true to this representation that you would think that they engraved these images directly onto the film itself. It makes real life look hand-drawn. The painstaking amount of effort must have been unbelievable. The production design is as immaculate as it is thorough. It's completely thought out and articulated whole. Every nook and cranny, in corners, the underside of tables. Details like lines on the water, which were actually shot, but it looks like it's, like you mentioned earlier, the pop-up book come to life. Right. Not just water, but literal crashing waves. 
I love some specific elements like the stone wall around the sanatorium. You have to see it to understand what I'm talking about. And then the costuming. I'm reminded of that sequence when some of the pirates are on the ship and we see the different patterning that each of their shirts have. And you can tell there's roller work done here. And they've managed to create shadowing and partial areas where there's no pattern. I've never seen anything like this, where even the patterns on the clothing contribute a never-ending variety of lines and checks and stripes. Carol Postrachowski, the costume designer, is an unheralded genius, in my opinion. If they never made anything but this, this is a towering masterwork of costume design. Every pinstripe, every check is different on every single person and even within their own costume. The most impressive thing that I think they achieve is that this meticulous wall-to-wall engraves aesthetic, it never becomes overwhelming to the eye. It's designed so well that it constantly amazes with the level of detail or cleverly leads your eye to specific focal points, but it never leaves you fatigued somehow. Do you think having the film in black and white contributed to that, that you don't feel fatigued? If it were in color, might it have been a bit too overwhelming? That's a big what if to ask. I don't know if you even have an answer for that. No, I think it's a good question. I think of something like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I don't feel like that's overwhelming. But this is so loaded with detail that I think the monochrome helps for sure in your ability to process all of this. Well, the design is so amazing that I hate to say it, but the characters almost feel like an afterthought. I haven't even brought them up yet. As we're introduced to these characters in the beginning, we're also introduced to some of Vern's recurring themes. The marvels of progress, the expansion of human possibility, dominion over distance, time, the air, the ocean, and the fact that these things come with a price. There's a fantastic scene early on where one of these characters issues a typically Vernian warning Thus ends all human folly. I really love that. The way the visual style is a hybrid, I think so is the core story. It's a marvelous fairy slash cautionary tale. It's full of wonder and magic, but the source of said wonder also includes the danger of this new explosive device. It's destructive capabilities heretofore unheard of. What do you think of this type of film as a delivery device for messages like this? It's just so visually stunning and full of adventure. It has a sly sense of humor as well. Just look at this recurring joke of the circumstances being dictated by who has the biggest gun. Does all of that playfulness diminish the impact of the message, or is it better to reach a greater number of people in a less didactic, more entertaining way? I think of it more as optimism, like we had talked about earlier, and more of a sense of innocence. There's a way to bring about that faction of people that are striving for something great and new and wonderful, and they can't quite conceive because they don't have darkness in them of what the consequences might be to their actions. I think there's a reason that these kinds of things appeal to kids from that innocent perspective, and then it gives you so much more to think about. I wanted to think about a lot of those things when I was a kid. I was questioning what I was seeing around me, what I was feeling inside, So I do think that there is some intention to bringing about a message. There certainly was in the source material, but it never feels didactic to me. How about for you? 
I think it's always going to be generally more effective to have a ripping yarn than some dry documentary presentation of a message like this. I can only watch horrifying footage of people doing terrible things for so long, but if you give it to me like this, the optimism that you mentioned is very important because it inspires me to carry this with me and then act upon that in my daily life later. And some of that is because it is just so much fun. So we're not going to watch Tears in My Blowhole later on <laughs> today? <laughs> is that real or did you just make that up? I'm Well, that's a Parks and Rec reference. Okay. I think as we were watching this, we both looked at each other at some point and wondered if Zayman was connected to the theater somehow. We did that a bunch. I think we looked at each other and asked a lot of questions while we were watching this. Yes, I was definitely surprised to find that Zayman didn't have much of a connection to the theater. These backdrops and sets have that theater DIY aesthetic in a big way. Everything is clearly made by hand, and I can just picture the crew pulling together to stay up all night to finish this absurd amount of design and construction before day one of filming commences in just a few hours. Now, I know I am likely romanticizing that in some way, but the way this was made feels like a very theater thing to do. And just personally, from my own experience, whenever I see use of pattern and texture like that, that's a classic theater hallmark. Melies came from that theater background, at least with staging magic performances. So he also brought a lot of that handmade showmanship to filmmaking. But the thing I find most interesting is that Zayman was conceiving his work as exclusively cinematic from the start. And I think that's what allowed him to take Melies as a starting point and move that style into the 20th century and also create something that could sustain a longer narrative rather than just being short episodes of fascinating visual magic. And speaking of visual magic, these pirates are signaled by their compatriot and the kidnapping begins in earnest. Much skullduggery is afoot. There is so much action in this. Once it really gets going, which doesn't take long, it feels like it zips from one incredible set piece to another. It's already a tidy 83 minutes to begin with, so there is not a dull moment in this thing. We're treated to undersea views from the submarine, which is very reminiscent of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. As part of their dastardly plan, the pirate submarine crashes into another ship so that they can plunder it. And it was when we first got a glimpse of these divers and this underwater operation that I really felt like this is one of my favorite things that I've ever seen. These aquatic scenes are emblematic of what's great about the film as a whole in that they take that source material and just vault into a stratosphere of imagination. As a specific example, in the original edition of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, there's an illustration of the underwater landscape of Crespo Island. These underwater sequences use that and similar illustrations as a template and they craft an entire underwater universe full of thrills, beauty, and danger. In the beginning, when we're seeing these amazing inventions in the sky, flying machines, or the iron horse crossing the land, those don't speak to me in quite the same way that anything happening under the sea does. I was obsessed with being underwater when I was a kid. Basically, I still am. But there was a long period in my life where I imagined myself living underwater permanently. Is this why you love the abyss so much? You joke and you're <laughs> laughing at me and you're smirking at me, but um, no, that is true. This speaks to me. This was made for me. That little bike that they have that they're pedaling on. Oh my gosh. It even has a bell. Oh, it's 
perfect. Everything is perfect. There's a sea monster, which you know is going to appeal to me. That huge ink cloud that comes out during the battle with the sea monster is incredible to look at. It is, but it does upset me. I felt really badly because I wanted the sea monster to live, of course. (laughs) There are a couple of other effects that I want to mention that are among my favorite. I think one of my very specific favorite visual effects is the use of lightning. And we've talked about how this is a hybrid because under the sea, there are sections of just full animation that are really neat to watch. And he never stops with just one thing. There's even documentary footage used throughout, especially during the big storm and the stoving in of the ship. There's almost too much cool stuff to catalog in these underwater sequences. There's a shark fight. Later in the film, when our protagonist is on the verge of death on the seafloor, he hallucinates fish melding into one another and turning into lace butterflies. It's incredible. Just like you, these underwater sequences are what really make this film special for me. There really is just no way for us to do this justice, I think. It's also one of the rare occasions that I enjoy thinking about how they made it as much as I enjoy watching what they made. And I love watching it. And even reading about it, I still really can't conceive of how this was created. The arsenal of techniques that they employ is just dizzying. Cut out animation, puppets, stop motion, matte paintings, double exposures, miniatures, models, meticulously drawn and painted sets. Just the ingenuity of how simply and beautifully the machines and laboratory equipment is designed and the illusion of height and depth that they achieve, that alone is just worth noting. And then you have all this combined with live action. And not just combined when I say that. I mean wholly integrated. These aren't just things put side by side, or a sequence of one style followed by a sequence of another style. Multiple elements frequently live on screen at the same time, in a way that is sometimes seamless, and then sometimes charmingly obvious, but no less artful. Now we meet Count D'Artigas. He is the owner, the financier, the mastermind. He really fancies himself the master of the ocean, probably the master of the world. Yeah, not just mastermind, criminal mastermind. I think this character is a classic supervillain. He's the arrogance of humanity personified. He boasts about the superiority of their planning, how they make their own luck and nothing is left to chance completely discounting the possibility that he could ever be outwitted and completely ignoring the factor of random chance. He believes in science, which is in his favor, but I think he misapplies that faith. So he's missing that innocence or that optimism. He's intelligent, sophisticated, and urbane. This is a very civil kidnapping to begin with. He displays great magnanimity, rescuing Yana, a shipwreck survivor, never mind that he scuttled her ship in the first place. His lair is in a dormant volcano. And that's back cup. I love that terminology, by the way. And there's a wonderful Leon Benet engraving that is truly brought to life in the film. And truly, he's created this underworld city with a laboratory. I think my favorite part here is the jellyfish. All of this made me think of other more unlikely connections. For example... How much was Ian Fleming influenced by Jules Verne? This is definitely a prototypical James Bond bad guy. Dr. No had an underwater lair and even a giant squid. 
James Bond was not in my mind, though I think that's a great parallel. I kept thinking about another great Vern supervillain, I think my favorite, and that's Captain Nemo. Well, that source material just resonates through so many things. I'm sure we could follow all sorts of cinematic off-ramps to tie Vern to modern villains in a million different ways. And what I think that speaks to really is just the strength of the original writing. The time when Vern was publishing all this, this source material, it comes from a time when scientific breakthroughs seemed too wondrous to be believed sometimes. Each new major discovery felt like it completely reshaped the world. A great thing Zaman's film does is to capture that sense of amazement in the Victorian era when it still felt like there were new worlds left to explore. Unfortunately, it's a sensation that's dulled a little bit in our life and times. The speed at which technology moves now and our relative sophistication regarding those things is just so different. And I think it's a feeling we need, or at least I need, now more than ever. When you and I travel, we frequently seek out museums, and we're especially attracted to those sections that highlight explorers. Do you feel this same sadness that I feel that we've used most of that up now, this undiscovered country? Or does visiting those exhibits still inspire you? Yes, I am definitely still inspired and awed, even if I'm reading an account from something 200 years ago. I don't think that we've mapped everything, and I don't think we will ever will, whether that's physical terrain or our own bodies or minds. There's still something to be explored every day. Maybe that's that Vern optimism, the kid adventurer in me. And really, until I see a lot of these places for myself, they still will be undiscovered, at least to me. Until we set foot on Antarctica, it's still going to be a place in storybooks. It's great that you mentioned that, because I think it's a great thing to have a piece of art like this that makes discovery not just seem possible, but probable. And this is why preserving and sharing film culture is so important, especially globally speaking. Can you imagine being cheated out of being able to see this because of someone else's disinterest or neglect? I can't believe this was missing from my life for 50 years. It still sparks my imagination like it would have when I was a kid. So thank goodness for archivists, preservationists, curious programmers, and everyone else that extends the life of a film by digging for it, researching it, screening it, or even just talking about it. All of those things help a film from being lost or forgotten. You're welcome. <laughs> well, in some small way, <laughs> I hope that's what we achieve here. And we've talked about now, or recommended, over 470 films at this point. Who knows how many that will come to by the time we're done. Hopefully, we are doing our part with our enthusiasm to extend the life cycle of all those films, big and small. Well, thankfully, this is not the betrayal debacle that you brought us into, because you can actually see Invention for Destruction. Right? It's gettable. It absolutely is. Second Run, a boutique DVD imprint that really specializes in Czech films, you can get a pristine Blu-ray from them if you are multi-region capable. Otherwise, you can see the English dubbed one, at least for now, on YouTube. Although if you can manage the Czech original without the dub, it's obviously much better. But you don't get the Hugh Downs intro with the Czech one. So if you really want that Disney feeling, go for that. Something that occurred to me when we watched it, I didn't say anything, so I'm not sure how you feel about it, but the actor who plays Simon Hart, our narrator, he reminds me so much of Edgar Allan Poe. I wonder if that would be an even more interesting element if we were listening to the English dubbed version. 
Well, I can tell you from watching at least a little bit of the English dubbed version that there is no hint of a Virginia accent anywhere in there. Good to know. Well, how about we talk about Simon Hart and our scientists? Okay. Hart is our engineer. He's our narrator. And he's the protege of Professor Roche, who is the brilliant inventor. D'Artigas is only interested in Roche and his invention. And the invention itself is basically the mother of all inventions, the secret of matter itself, to release the power that holds all matter together. So it's easy to understand how dangerous this could be in the wrong hands. My favorite character touch here is that Roche naively truly believes that the invention is to be guided by the technicians, the people who created it, and then the people who will use it to decide how it should be used. D'Artigas clearly does not fall into that camp. He's about destruction, enslavement, and ruling the world. Well, between Roche and Hart, we have two distinct viewpoints represented. You have Roche, the senior of the two, who is idealistic, maybe even a little bit of a mad scientist. He's so consumed with creation, he's so close to it, that he honestly can't see the negative and destructive potential of his creation until it's too late. It's that old saw of, we were so busy asking ourselves if we could do it, we didn't stop to ask if we should. And then there's Hart. He's the younger of the two. He can see farther down the road than Roche. Do you think this is in part because he is being directly excluded from the creation phase? It allows him to obtain some objective distance? I wonder if he had not been kidnapped and then basically jailed, prohibited from helping Roche, prohibited from having any sort of voice in the matter. That means that he immediately sees the destructive power of the invention and can clearly see D'Artigas as well. I like this ironic touch that of the two men, it's the younger that who is wiser in the ways of the world and the strengths and weaknesses of humanity. And he's too principled to participate when he is actually eventually asked to contribute in some small way. He refuses. And I think that would be an incredibly difficult decision. Scientists are going to science. If intellectual curiosity is what defines you as a person, how do you stifle the drive to experiment and create? I think that Hart actually satisfies some of that urge by keeping this journal. He's rechanneling that energy into his plan to warn civilization. And he truly stands up for what he believes in. At the moment when it counts, he does not shut his eyes to the reality of what's taking place. All I could think when he is sending this balloon, this message in a bottle, essentially, to civilization at large is, what good will that do? I think it shows a great deal of faith in humanity, and that faith is rewarded as eventually Hart is saved, his word gets out, and the world unifies to stop this madman. Tellingly, ultimately, the professor himself is struck by the horror that he has made possible. Even now, and I'm sure even more so at the time of the release, it makes me think of the Manhattan Project and Robert Oppenheimer a little bit. There are multiple layers to this, multiple overtones. There's the source material itself. At the time that it came out, Jules Verne was actually sued by a chemist, Eugene Turpin, who recognized himself in the character of Roche as it was written, and he was not amused. His invention, the explosive melanite, was used extensively in the First World War. Again, is there a little guilt baked into that libel accusation that he is leveling at Verne? 
And speaking of guilt and regret, there's also Alfred Nobel, who invented dynamite and very much regretted it later on. And then we've got the other layer coming at the time when the film comes out in 1958, we're post-Hiroshima, we're still very much in the atomic age, and also the Cold War. And it's not an American Cold War perspective. It is very distinctly a perspective from behind the Iron Curtain. We're looking at a book that's one of the first to deal with these problems that would come half a century later. New weapons of potential mass destruction. The full utilization of which they couldn't comprehend at the time, and that's what we're so concerned about. And then the competition of these powers to obtain stockpiles of these weapons. Is this the example of the dry documentary didactic style that we should be avoiding and make this more entertaining to deliver the message? How about we talk about the score for a second? Go for it. Zdenek Lischka did this score, and it is fantastic. We really should nod to him because he was a prolific and celebrated composer. Over 200 credits on IMDb from the 40s until the early 90s, including a number of Zaman's films, and a lot of work with one of my favorites, animator Jan Svankmeyer. My favorite element of the score is the brilliant way that various instruments are used to convey bells of different shapes and sizes. Same for me. There are a couple of instances of that in when weaponry or machinery becomes music as well. And just like with the visual factor here, he's using instruments from the time to evoke that same sense of where we're rooted in the story. There really is just so much fun stuff in this. In addition to the underwater sequences, there is one scene that really hits me where I live, and that is this projector scene. At one point, Count D'Artigas indulges an audience with some proto-newsreels. It's like a combination of an oversized zoetrope and a viewmaster. I was really taken with these projected amusements and Zayman's sly commentary on the primitive but enduring nature of the way that these technologies intersect with our lives and fully captivate us, or at least me. When it comes down to it, it's all still just a series of still images thrown up in succession on a bright screen in a dark room. We've graduated from shadows from the fire on the cave wall to the 4D IMAX experience that we had in Tokyo. But it's only the technology that really advances a little bit. As an audience, what we want hasn't changed that much. We want a window into another world. We want to be transported. We want to experience the exotic and dangerous and be able to walk away from it when all is said and done. And I would have been first in line at this theater in his undersea lair. I will watch Camels on Skates <laughs> in any century. I've got another of those favorite other moments. Mm -hmm. There's a lovely little sequence. It's simple, and that's when Hart is signaling to Yana, the castaway, and he sails a boat to her with a note. And it's not about love. It is about connection, and it is about message. I think if we went back and watched it right now, we'd probably find another half dozen things that we easily missed the first time around that would become new favorite sequences. I think this really is ripe for multiple viewings. Well, as we close in on the big finale, we meet the balloon crew that will deploy the big bomb, and these guys are as creepy as they are incompetent. And it's really pretty convenient for the plot that they have featureless coveralls and masks that can easily fit our protagonists. It's just like space mutiny. Hart and Yana subdue them, they swipe their outfits, and they proceed to hijack this balloon. 
I think it's fitting both for Vern and for Zaman that the more primitive technology ultimately prevails over the state of the art. Both of their artistic achievements are such a curious mix of the futuristic tempered with a deep affection for the archaic. And in Vern's style, there is a very human wrench in the works as the professor sabotages this supergun and sacrifices himself. He at last comes to understand the true nature of what this device would be used for. He truly sees his creation. He's that wild card that D'Artagas did not account for. That's humanity. That's love. The themes that Verne focuses on surrounding the development of technology and the intrinsic responsibilities could be applied to any powerful new weapon. But when Zaman made this film, like you've already stated, we had really just entered the era when technology had finally caught up to the worst thing that Verne could imagine. We finally had built the weapon that was only fantasy when he originally put pen to paper. His cautionary tales certainly didn't stop us this first time around. Granted, this is ultimately a light-hearted entertainment built around whimsy and fantastic elements, but Verne was always warning us about reining in these madmen. As a result, are you slightly relieved when we get this nice little visual signal of the Count's top hat floating away in the ocean? Well, this film ends the way that I like all films to end, with some element of sorrow. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely that sorrowful feeling. What is lost? And we don't end on a big high note, even though the balloon is soaring away. There's sacrifice and true reality here. But still, we're going up into the future, and there's still an element of optimism. If this was made now, would we get a the end question mark? Since we don't actually see the Count's body at any point. I don't imagine Zaman was cannily angling for the potential sequel, though Vern might remind us that there's never any shortage of megalomaniacs bent on destruction. If this was made in America in 1958, we would have had the question mark. If this was made now, it would be Wes Anderson, and I think it would be even more whimsical. I know you haven't seen The Life Aquatic yet, but the final sequence when they are underwater in that submarine definitely calls back to this influence. Now, I know science fiction and fantasy are not what you would call your favorite genres, probably steampunk in particular, yet you really enjoy this. Isn't this somehow just the most pure distillation of those things? How does this work? How do you resolve that in your brain? I'm going to have to come up with a new thing to say because there's going to constantly be something that you show me, just like with animation, that destroys everything I thought I felt about it before. So I just need to shut up about that and let that whole I'm not into sci-fi fantasy go. Well, how would you delineate the difference between what you see here and those things that you don't gravitate to in the genre? I think it comes back to message or something that I can specifically relate to. There are certain worlds created in sci-fi and fantasy that I feel I can never get into. I can never find a point of reference. Do you have a specific example? Do you want me to sing you some Hobbit songs? <laughs> yeah, shut up. I think something maybe like Blade Runner, I guess, would be a big example. Even with its noir underpinnings and how much we love Future City Tokyo, you can't get into it? I didn't say I couldn't get into it. I feel less of a point of reference with consciousness mm, okay. than I do with consequence, which is what this film is about for me. And why I love 
that subgenre of atomic age stuff so much. So how about when you compare this to Zaman's other work? We hosted one of our movie nights and we screened the fabulous Baron Munchausen. How does this compare to that for you? And that one made my ants list for last year. I do think, and I was surprised, that this definitely surpassed Munchausen. You were surprised because you thought nothing could surpass Munchausen? Absolutely. I didn't think going in on paper that this was going to just blow me away. It's just so incredibly beautiful. It's exciting. It's wondrous. It's never twee. It's just brilliant on so many levels. It's difficult. I was worried even that we were going to be talking about it because it is so truly visual, which sounds silly when you're talking about a film. But when you see it, you'll understand. I like this one better, too, in subject matter and especially style and presentation. I think it's more my speed. I feel like if you like Munchausen, this will just knock your eyeballs out. And I like this thing you say about it not being twee. It's from a different era where I think the thing I most want to call it is quaint, but not as a pejorative, not dismissively the way that that's usually used. I mean quaint as a virtue in this case. And the twee thing makes me think of something else. In its lifetime, it's been marketed as highbrow art film and as children's entertainment. Do you think it belongs more in one camp than the other? I know you touched on this a little bit, but are you one of those people that at one point in your life saw animation and reflexively thought, this is for kids? Probably yes to both of those. And I do think if I were a kid in 1961 when you could first see this in America, I would have thought, yes, this is for me. They're speaking to me. This was made for me. I would have gone out and built my little underwater suit at that point. And then 30, 40, 50 years later, I would have thought, this is fine art. I think you nailed it earlier when you were talking about what Zaman and Verne both have in common is that they were dreamers, idealists, optimists being the most important designation of all those. And I think it's that very thing that allows them to tap into that thing inside you and I and other people like us, no matter if we're eight or 80. I think it works across the board, no matter how old you are, if you have a specific type of mind, if you enjoy this so much like we do, I think it's a movie that you could return to at various points in your life. And I'd even be fine with getting the same thing every time, but I think you would get more and more each time. We don't typically talk during movies, never at the theater, and seldom even at home. This was so overwhelming, though. I exclaimed multiple times during the movie how I was taken with it, and I think I just wanted to make sure that you were seeing what I was seeing, that I wasn't just imagining how magnificent this was. I was really taken by surprise by it. It's a sensation that you don't get much anymore to look at a film and really have it impact you with how lovingly handmade the whole thing is. This film did the same thing for me that Princess Kaguya did. Something so beautiful that makes me forget that I'm watching animation or really any specific style. It's just in another class. I'll never forget it. I quite literally have never seen anything else like this. And that is an experience that is rich and rare. And while we're on the subject of wonder no matter what age we are, one last thing I want to mention, there is a Carol Zaman Museum in Prague. Prague is always on my short list of the next place I want to go, and it just moved up a few notches. Let's get our tickets right now. I would if we could. They do animation and special effects workshops, boat rides, and the individual rooms of the museums are set up like movie studios. 
There are small stages with backdrops that you can interact with and shoot scenes. You can take controls of this submarine from Invention for Destruction. We need to stop talking about it because I'm going to start crying. (laughs) There are also unpublished photographs, original puppets, other documentary materials. So you've got the interactive, playful side of things for the kid inside you, and then the preservation and dissemination side of things for the grown-up. Prague, here we come. But for now, instead of recommending a travel service to book tickets, how about you recommend everyone a film to watch? I went with a creator who spoke about his admiration for Carol Zaman, and that's Ray Harryhausen. So I chose... The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. That's one of your big favorites. It is. And that's from 1953, five years before this film. It was directed by Eugene Lurier with Paul Christian, Paula Raymond, Cecil Kellaway, and Kenneth Toby. Harryhausen, of course, did the stop-motion animation special effects for it. The story is about a Rhetosaurus, which is a fictional dinosaur, by the way, who was released from its hibernating state by an atomic bomb test in the Arctic Circle. You've just combined everything I love in the world right there. The dinosaur then wreaks a path of destruction culminating in New York City. It goes without saying, I love the effects here. Anything in the atomic age is wonderful for me. And the scientists here are more of the gentle, slightly bumbling variety fascinated and enthralled by science, but without that very, very dark underpinning. I did almost recommend The Abyss, but I'll just save that for a regular episode. Now, how about you? For mine, I went with the mysterious geographic explorations of Jasper Morello from 2005. It's an Australian short film directed by Anthony Lucas and narrated by Joel Edgerton, and it's about a disgraced airship navigator in search of redemption on a dangerous voyage in his plague-ridden homeland. I showed this for one of my movie nights way back before we met, and it was a big hit, the main reason being that it is visually stunning. It's layer upon layer of silhouette animation, bound objects, and intricate illustrations, and is firmly in the Victorian steampunk mold. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Animated Short, and you can find it pretty easily online as of this recording. It's only 26 minutes long. It's really easy to digest. I didn't do this on purpose, but you'll like it because it ends in the Arctic. And it's perfect for those of us that like their Jules Verne with a little Lovecraftian twist at the end. And I'm going to do what you just did and cheat Eric along style and say, also watch War Gods of the Deep with Vincent Price. Uh, I was just about to say (laughs) that. (laughs) Beat you. So once again, that's two great recommendations. The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and the Mysterious Geographic Explorations of Jasper Morello. And that brings us to the end of episode 105. If what we do here is valuable to you, and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. Our podcast network, The 25th Frame, is home to so many great shows, I can't even keep up with them all. And I'd like to talk a little bit this time about our friend Brian Sauer and his excellent show, Just the Discs. Brian is all about celebrating physical media, so you know that's a subject near and dear to our hearts. 
Once a week, he and a rotating group of guests will break down the best of the recent crop of Blu-ray releases, and he talks genre stuff, boutique labels like Indicator and Vinegar Syndrome that I know we all love. He has great guests like Brendan Small from one of our favorites, Home Movies. I think I squealed when I saw that. <laughs> Delving into madness like the Manitou. I was lucky enough to be on with him, extolling the virtues of the Criterion release of Smithereens. So if you like liner notes, booklets, extra features, and that sweet, sweet feeling of taking the shrink wrap off of something new and shelving it in your ever-growing collection, then this is the show for you. And you can find just the discs wherever you get your podcasts or at 25thframemedia.com. We're on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. The fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Andy Wolverton, Terry and Liz at Happily Cinemaried, John Merrill, and Mike Scharf. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure and tag us so we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and at the 25th frame. Just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us there. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Fifth Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.